0: Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Al-Yafai, and this is the podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Since the war in Ukraine broke out, the impounded super yachts of sanctioned Russian oligarchs have become a familiar sight on news broadcasts worldwide. They serve as visible reminders of the sheer scale of their owners' corruption. Worldwide, it is impossible to precisely measure how much money is lost to corruption like that. The United Nations estimates that kleptocrats, oligarchs, and corrupt officials siphon around $3.6 trillion, trillion dollars from their respective countries' economies. It's a staggering amount of money. So where does it all go? Oliver Bulow is an investigative journalist specializing in corruption and financial crime. His latest book, Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats, and Criminals, examines how the UK's financial sector became a major destination, perhaps the major destination, on the transnational money laundering highway. Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, let's start with the $3.6 trillion question. Where does it all go? When you're dealing with a sum of that size, I wonder if there isn't really a single definitive answer, but the answer in the book seems to be London mainly.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a question with many parts to it um initially is that 3.6 trillion dollar question uh this is an astonishingly large amount of money we know it's an astonishingly large amount of money but we don't actually know how much money it is we don't even have an idea within an order of magnitude how much money it is there are yeah. these various estimates chucked out there um but many of them are, are just guesses that have been essentially given the status of facts because they've been used repeatedly over and over again. You know, we hear uh, sometimes it's a trillion dollars, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's two to five percent of global GDP. Um, mm. But these are just guesses uh, right. because there's never really been any proper work, any, any proper investigations into how much money is stolen and laundered around the world. This is one of the great um, failures of the Global anti-money laundering setup is no one's ever really had the uh, curiosity to try and work out how big a problem this is beyond saying it's clearly a really big problem. Um, so where does the money go? Uh, well, this again is a complicated question because of the nature of how money moves. Criminal money, criminal money moves between multiple different countries every time it goes through a different country. You mm. know, it can essentially hide behind new shell companies. And it ends up, you know, ever more difficult to find. Um, And the really interesting questions, for me anyway, are where does the money come from? Um, That's clear. It comes from countries of the global south in the main, though not exclusively. Um, Where does it end up? Well, it tends to end up in countries of the global north. Um, Mm. And that is where London comes in, because London has this magical combination, really, from the perspective of a kleptocrat or or major organised criminal, which is that it's a place where everything is for sale you can buy anything you like and it's a place where the enforcement of the rules around anti money laundering or financial crime are incredibly weak um mm-hmm. you know the investigative agencies the enforcement agencies are, are underfunded in in a you know to an almost unimaginable extent they really can't do anything so where a lot of the money ends up in london for the simple reason that if it comes to london it's safe it's not only protected by british courts from anyone who challenges it but it's unlikely to be investigated by any British enforcement agencies because they don't have the time or resources or people to do the job.
0: You, you make it sound quite a lawless place, which is intuitively complicated because, of
1: course, most people think of Britain as being very law abiding. Yeah, it, it's it, I, actually this there was a perfect demonstration of this phenomenon earlier this year when a, a small group of anarchists there were, as far as I could tell, four of them had uh, decided yeah. to occupy uh, the house belonging to the Russian tycoon de Gderapaska, in fact, I, I think it later became apparent it belonged to a family member of his, but definitely someone related to him. Um, mm. And, you know, their occupation was very peaceful. These weren't sort of anarchists rampaging around the house, setting it on fire. They were just sitting on the balcony, dangling their feet over the edge, singing silly songs and occasionally waving to their friends in the rain. Um, yeah. That was it. Now, yeah. in order to, to combat this existential threat to law and order, There were, as far as I could tell, around 30 police officers equipped with special gear, cranes, harnesses in order to try and climb up to winkle these anarchists off the facade of this building. You know, it it was complicated by the fact that any time their crane got close to them, the anarchists would just scoot down to the other end of the balcony, which meant they had to lower the crane down and start again. It was an absolutely farcical operation. But the reason it's relevant is the fact that 30 police officers to combat four anarchists uh, sitting on the balcony of this house. I, I don't think I, I certainly have never heard any suggestion that the origin of the money that that went to buy that house was ever investigated by a single police officer. Mm. That well, that that's the the, and yeah, that was the point. point that... right? That's the point right there, right? That mm. you've got if there's any challenge to property in this country, then it is cracked down on forcefully um, with the full might of the law. But in terms of crimes committed overseas, potentially, or the origin of money from overseas no one is interested. Uh, The money just comes here, it's spent here, it's welcomed as foreign direct investment. You know, it it isn't like, uh, you know, Eliege Deropasco. I mean, Eliege Deropasco, as far as I know, has never been convicted of any crimes, but he is someone who's been of interest to foreign governments. You know, he's been sanctioned in the United States in the past, for example. He's been sanctioned again now, of course. So it wasn't exactly as if the UK authorities could have had no suspicions about him, but they certainly never put any time into investigating where his money came from.
0: And that's because they benefit from it, of course. I mean, this has to be partly a political question, because the Met Police must have been told at some point, not necessarily on that day, but previously, that if there is any threat to property, that is what needs to be focused on. So that is coming. Yeah,
1: right. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a conspiracist. I don't believe in conspiracies. I don't believe that anyone really in a position of power is sufficiently competent to run a a large-scale secret conspiracy without it becoming either falling apart or becoming public. I think this is a far more sinister situation than that. But essentially, we have a long-term situation has been allowed to develop whereby this country has become dependent um, economically on moving, uh, on processing, on receiving, um, on packaging up and moving around money of questionable origin, that this is essentially Britain's post-imperial business model we are no longer the oligarch on our own account anymore we we are no longer building empire on our own account so we are just advising other people on how to build their own empires on how to be oligarchs for themselves that is something we still know how to do so but you've said that it's
0: a reputational issue because actually the money compared to for example to the city of london is actually relatively small
1: yeah it is but there is a challenge here which is something which it took me a little while to figure out but which I think is absolutely at the core to the whole problem, which is that it isn't only kleptocrats that want secrecy, to dodge taxes, to dodge scrutiny, and to avoid any kind of legal repercussions for what they do. It's all rich people. So the challenge is, how do you dissect out the money, the capital flows that belong to kleptocrats or organized criminals from the capital flows that belong to just ordinary rich people who want all the same things as kleptocrats do? Keptocrats are just, the, the money they own is no different to any other money. It just happens to come from crime rather than from from legitimate business. But as soon as it's in the international financial system, it looks exactly the same. It behaves in exactly the same way and it ends in exactly the same places. Um, this was demonstrated incredibly clearly in Britain by the government's response to the Danske Bank money laundering scandal, it's right? certainly the, the, either the biggest or the second biggest money laundering scandal of all time, depending on how you count it, and the largest proportion of the funds that moved via Danske Bank's Estonian branch in the years up to 2013 were hidden, their, their, their ownership was hidden behind British shell companies, specifically British shell companies, and, and limited partnerships and limited liability partnerships in the main. Um, this scandal was exposed, it was revealed, it was known about, and This came to Parliament, it was brought to Parliament by some energetic members of Parliament and after having been publicised by some energetic journalists. Um, But the government's response was to deliberately not do anything to solve this problem. And the reason they didn't do anything to solve this problem was not because they wanted to encourage money laundering, but because those same structures were being used by private funds, private investment funds, and they were desperately worried that if they closed this particular loophole, those private investment funds, would go off to Luxembourg or to Delaware or somewhere else. So the challenge is that, how do you prevent criminal capital flowing through the city of London without also preventing the flow of other capital through the city of London? That I think is the the, the, the dog that scares British government after British government off doing anything about this. And sadly, that means that the victims of financial crime and kleptocracy grow ever more numerous because of our failures in this country to do anything about it. And that explains,
0: to go back to the Deripaska example, that explains why there was such a large police response, because the police are not necessarily responding just to Deripaska, they're responding in a sense to the hundred thousand people below him who don't have 200 million they have just a few million and a couple of houses and they worry that if the the um, Protesters are willing to go after Deripaska and nothing happens. Well, what about my one million dollar apartment things like that? And it's oh, those people that the government are concerned about because there's so many of them.
1: Of course, absolutely I mean, you know Britain that the title of my book is Butler to the world um, ever since uh, the fact that the book came out um, in, in the UK anyway at a time that was coincidentally almost exactly the same as when Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine, means that obviously most of the focus um, it has been on Russian oligarchs and how Britain has been the major destination for the wealth of Russian oligarchs. But Britain is not butler to the Russians, it's butler to the world. And the Russians are actually a relatively small share of the country's clients, of butler Britain's clients. So if Anarchists are allowed to invade and occupy a Russian oligarch's house with impunity. What I mean, that is clearly going to concern um, a Saudi gentleman who lives next door, an Emirati who lives three doors down, an American tech billionaire. You know, have I mean, maybe perhaps a British billionaire, a Swedish billionaire, a French billionaire. None of them want to the idea that anarchists rampaging around the place, breaking into their houses and sitting and singing silly songs on their balconies. So that that is the concern right there. Mm. You know, and some of them. Yeah, and some of them, of course, these
0: people you're talking about, they have political power as well. They're heads of state or they're daughters of heads of state and things like that.
1: Yeah, and they are well, well networked with our ruling class. Boris Johnson, when he was mayor of London, famously said that um, London is the natural habitat of the billionaire, just like the jungles of Sumatra is the natural habitat of the orangutan. And this is a city where billionaires have been encouraged to feel at home for a very, very long time. And anything that makes them feel uncomfortable is a threat to the city's business model. One of the difficulties
0: with discussing financial crime is that it's not a discussion that's immediately intuitive to most people. It it can be very abstract. I mean, it's not as if there are literal suitcases of dirty cash being smuggled up the Thames. So I wonder if you can explain a bit about the mechanism. How does this dirty money come into the City of London? How does it get to the point where estate agents are accepting it for these large houses?
1: Well, I I will briefly stop you there. There are suitcases of dirty money. Um, um, It is, you know, uh, a a very broad spectrum, open opportunity for the criminal economy here. There is huge quantities of dirty cash flowing in and out of London as well. But obviously the the quantity pales into insignificance compared to the the volume of electronic money that is flowing in and out of of the city every single day. How does the money get here? It gets any way you can imagine. If you can imagine it, that's almost certainly happening. Uh, financial crime, the financial crime services business, London's corruption services economy, is incredibly entrepreneurial, very imaginative, endlessly innovating, constantly finding ways of, of, of new services to provide for its clients, whether those are, you know, in wealth defence, in wealth movement, in wealth protection, in wealth multiplication, all of these things are, are very profitable businesses and inevitably they spread and grow all the time. But in essence, uh, it, it's a three stage process. Uh, you, someone obtains their wealth, they might obtain it legally, they might obtain it illegally, it doesn't really matter. They obtain their wealth, and then they wish to move their wealth in such a way that its origin is obscured. Uh, so you, you obtain your wealth, you hide your wealth, and then you can spend your wealth. London in, will help you with the second two phases, to hide your wealth and to spend your wealth. Now, in this, London is different to most offshore financial centres, almost all in fact. A lot of places will help you hide your wealth. Switzerland will help you do that. Uh, the British Virgin Islands, Jersey, uh, Cyprus, all of these places will help you hide your wealth. But when it comes to hiding and spending your wealth, London is an is a almost unique destination for money. So how do you hide it? Uh, the simple method is to uh, make sure it isn't owned by you, a person anymore, but instead is owned by a company which you control, but which it isn't clear that you control. Uh, a shell company, a shell structure, a foundation, a trust, a partnership. Whatever it might be, something that looks like a legitimate business, but was is in fact just a a cutout for you yourself. You might want to use multiple different shell companies because every single one of these finding out who owns it is a challenge for the law enforcement agencies. And and if you use enough of them, they'll never find out who really owns the money. And then so you've moved the money through multiple jurisdictions and using multiple shell companies until it's finally ended up in a bank in the city of London or in a bank that has access to the city of London. And then once it's here. you know, the the world is your oyster. You can do what you like with it. Everything is for sale in the UK. So you can, uh, famously, you can buy yourself a football club. You can buy yourself a mansion. You can buy yourself fine art. You can buy yourself a super yacht. You can find every single person you need to to service all of those nice things you've just bought, whether that's football managers, captains for your super yacht, you know, domestic staff to, for your mansion, or or politicians who you can get on the payroll to help you ease your passage into polite society it it's genuinely just a market a market where everything has a price and if you haven't you know managed to uh, negotiate a price yet that's just because you're not offering enough money <laughs>
0: i mean this i think this aspect
1: of britain comes across very strongly
0: in the book that in contrast to a place like the british virgin islands you know there there's a limited number of things you can buy in the British Virgin Islands. There's an unlimited number of large apartments and country estates and schooling and Lamborghinis. You can buy all of that stuff in the UK. And so naturally, if it's a choice between living somewhere that perhaps not everybody wants to live, but keeping your money safe, or living in the UK, keeping your money safe, nobody knows who you are, and you can spend everything, inevitably people choose
1: the British option. Of course. And there may be some American listeners here who are are listening to this and saying, well, we have all these things, too. Why? Why isn't the money in New York or in L.A. or in Miami? And of course, some of it is right. But but the big difference between the United States and the United Kingdom in this regard, very similar in all sorts of ways, similar legal system, similar developed financial system, similar open economies, similar, you know, uh, open societies, very welcoming to immigrants and so on. The big difference between the United Kingdom and the United States is that we don't have an enforcement mechanism to, to investigate your wealth once it gets here. There is no FBI. There is no Homeland Security investigations. There is no Southern District of New York in Britain. These things simply don't exist. There are formal equivalents of them, you know, organizations that are supposed to fulfill the same roles, but they are so underfunded, they're so starved of resources that they are essentially just, you know, pale shadows of, of, of the American Equivalent. So, I with a, so a couple of journalist friends of mine, we occasionally joke that the National Crime Agency, which is nominally Britain's FBI, is actually just a press office. That once you get past the press office, there is no actual substance to it. That's not true. It does do some valuable work when it comes to combating sort of people trafficking and drug trafficking and so on. But when it comes to actually tackling high-level financial crime, it doesn't have the resources to do it. It doesn't have the ability to do it, and and it doesn't really have the the, the technical expertise because it's its officers are so underpaid that as soon as they're well trained up, they tend to leave and go and get a job as a compliance officer for HSBC anyway. When you lay it out like
0: that, it does start to look like a deliberate policy choice.
1: Yes, I think it it has a very deep roots. And I think at, at first it was a deliberate policy choice. I think it maintains itself by a degree of sort of inertia. But yes, back in the 1950s, which is when my story begins in the book, 1955 to 1956, um, Britain was in a real hole. It had these huge, huge debts that had run up fighting the Second World War. Its empire um, had, had, had gone the way of all things, and the countries were, of the empire were becoming progressively independent. The main colonies, India and Pakistan and so on, had become independent, and the others were, were, were on their way out the door too. You know, Britain was turning from the center of the world's biggest empire to being just another small European country and a pretty rainy and grim one at that. And, um, you know, what's a country to do when it's lost an empire? Well, it, it, it still had the City of London. The City of London might not be the financial centre of the British Empire anymore, but it still had the expertise and the contacts and the knowledge of how to move money around. So it reinvented itself. Um, accidentally, this is not planned and designed. It was something which bankers found their way to of their own accord. But once they found their way to it, they received a lot of encouragement from the Bank of England, uh, their regulators. They found their way to not moving pounds through the, British Empire through what was called the sterling system, but instead moving dollars through a different system, what they called the offshore system. And this is a system that was dependent for its profitability on being less well-regulated than the United States. So Britain's reinvention as an offshore economy depended on the fact that its bankers could move dollars more cheaply with fewer restrictions and regulations than their counterparts on Wall Street could do. And as soon as they started being able to do that, quite obviously, um, Bankers from other countries, from Japan, from continental Europe, from the United States, came to the city of London to set up shop too, because it was as equally profitable for them to engage in offshore business as it was for British bankers. And so, it was key to maintaining this new revenue stream for the British government. It was absolutely key that they retained this lower regulations than than Wall Street. And the American government didn't take this lying down. They saw large amounts of their Wall Street dollar business disappearing and going to London. They didn't want to to lose this revenue stream. So they reduced regulations in America, which meant Britain had to defend itself by reducing regulations further. So you end up with this race to the bottom that eventually sucks in all countries and money starts moving um, uh, you know, ever more freely and ever, ever more profitably for the owners of wealth. You know, but, but simply because the, the City of London needed to defend its business model by making sure it was always less regulated than Wall Street.
0: You present that part of the story, the post-Suez part, as a story of imperial decline. But it seemed to me that that's just as much a story of imperial continuity. So you say in the book that the British Empire was fundamentally just a mechanism for extracting wealth from the colonial periphery back to the imperial core. But now, by profiting from this overseas corruption, that's
1: still more or less what the UK is doing. It's just another form of neocolonialism. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting argument. It, and I can see that point of view. Um, I suppose where this is different to the past, I mean, you know, if you look at it from a purely financial perspective, how the money flows, where it comes from, where it ends up, then that is absolutely the case that this is a, gr- a degree, that it, this is neo colonial, I mean, completely. But where I think this is different is in the role of the UK. Um, now, and it, and it's, in its origins, the British Empire was a private empire. It was a series of private companies chartered by the British government who were sent off around the world to trade slaves or loot India or loot Canada or loot whatever continent you happen to mention. But gradually they were sort of brought, they were nationalised as it were, and they were brought under the control of the British government. So the British government was at the head of the empire. It was, you know, the ultimate sort of buy-side client uh, in financial services terms. What Britain is now is a sell-side operator. It sells services. It doesn't actually, as it were, commission those services itself. So I suppose, in a way, Britain's role now is a little bit like that of the of the tennis club at Wimbledon, the All England Tennis Club. Um, you know, it is vanishingly rare for a British person to win Wimbledon. It does occasionally happen, but I mean, let's face it, it's ah, it, it's it's astonishingly rare. But Britain still hosts the world's premier tennis competition, so that's a little bit what Britain is like now. It it makes sure it provides um, the centre for other people to come and enjoy, you know, cream teas, wonderful green lawns, uh, great facilities and and all that. So, you know, Britain has become a, a place where other people are able to come and make money, while Britain earns its its revenue from the fees that they pay, rather than a place that actually goes and makes these decisions for itself. So, you know, is that a substantial difference? Obviously not from the victims of of of, you know, looting in yeah. Nigeria or Malaysia or wherever, it doesn't make any difference to them who yeah. they get looted by. But I think there is a difference in the in in the role of Britain of going from being a, a sort of a buy side operator to a sell side operator, it does end up with a you know a, a different degree of agency in that you know you, you you can make you have more freedom of movement if it's you who is the oligarch than you do if you are just the provider of services to oligarch.
0: Well, that was why I wondered why you called it butler to the world and not banker to the world. But it sounds like that's the distinction that it's to do with the power and influence that you wield.
1: Yeah, and also the services that Britain operates are go far far beyond those that are operated by offered by a banker. Um, You know, this isn't purely a financial transaction. the 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 origins of the offshore economy in the City of London are financial. They agree they 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 begin with banks and other financial services companies, but they have transformed uh, widely into absolutely anything. So you know, legal services, accountancy services. actual butlering services britain is a big center for training actual butlers you know my my favorite example is actually after the the, my favorite recent example anyway is actually after the book was published Um, uh, alexei navalny's um researchers in russia published a report into the ownership of a of a yacht called the shahrazad a super yacht i think at the time it was the the largest super yacht in the world of unknown ownership and they say that, that, the, that the yacht actually belongs to Vladimir Putin. I understand that this is disputed, and it's not entirely clear whether it does or doesn't. But what was really interesting was the crew manifest. All of the crew was Russian, and a lot of them were employed by the Kremlin in the, in the sort of Russian equivalent of the US Secret Service, people who are, whose job it is to protect the Kremlin and to protect the president. All of the crew was Russian except one, the captain, who was British. And that was a, a really... And, and a pattern that is just repeated again and again and again. That you end up with these, you know, the, the top of the tree, the top service level are British people, whether those are mm. judges or and lawyers in the sort of the Dubai, you know, common law tribunal where business disputes are decided, or or super yacht captains, or the people who bring the most expensive defamation proceedings, or or, or you name it, whatever it is, there is that's the cachet of the British accent and the British sort of way of doing things, and and you know it's it's quite clear to me anyway that that essentially what britain is offering is integration to the elite it offers people of recent fortune integration to the aristocracy we turn oligarchs into aristocrats you get to play a real life version of downton abbey that's what's being offered by britain and and it's a you know an astonishingly clearly an astonishingly attractive um offer for people of great wealth because they continue coming here and they keep Essentially buying this option for themselves and for their families.
0: Well, let's talk about Ukraine, because you wrote this book before the invasion of Ukraine, but it's made these issues much more topical, and as we talked about with the super yachts, it's sort of brought them into, into public attention. I wonder if you think that the the war in Ukraine has made British friendliness towards Russian oligarch more difficult to justify politically than in the past?
1: It's undoubtable that it has caused a total rethink of Britain's approach towards Russian, Russian oligarchs. It is astonishing the rapidity of the governmental rethink. Uh, back in uh, the, the very early weeks of the year, a government minister resigned um, live in the House of Lords uh, because of the government's failure to take financial crime seriously. Um, since then, we have had uh, an Economic Crime Act. We are promised. Uh, another one before the end of the year. We have had sanctions against hundreds of uh, not just Russian oligarchs, but their hangers-on, their family members, and so on, uh, and, and leading Russian figures. It's been a you know an amazing turnaround. Uh, it, you know, London has gone from being the favoured destination for wealthy Russians to being a genuinely hostile environment for them, mm. um, and that's great uh, in as far as it goes. However, it doesn't really go very far. You notice that we're only talking about Russian oligarchs here. We're not talking about oligarchs from all the other countries um you know it it, it London remains a very attractive destination for uh Ukrainian oligarchs or Azeri oligarchs, Kazakh oligarchs, Kyrgyz oligarchs Nigerian, Angolan you name it. <laughs> it just it, keeps going yeah. it keeps going this is a you know this is a a, a wonderful welcoming society for all of those people and yet. There's nothing intrinsically different about their wealth compared to the wealth of Russians. The the only thing that's different is the fact that Putin invaded Ukraine. Um, Mm. It wasn't a law enforcement response that made Britain suddenly get serious about Russian oligarchs. It was a foreign policy response. And that makes me worried because what is required here is a law enforcement response, not a foreign policy response. So that's one point. And the the Mm. second point, and this is a really important one, is that again and again and again in response to crises, whether those are crises around financial crime or, or, or other things, but but particularly for this context around financial crime, the British government's response has been to pass a law. Um, here we go, we've passed a law, the problem is solved. And they have never given the law enforcement agencies the resources they need to actually enforce that law. And that's the crucial difficulty that we're up against. That Yes, we have a new Economic Crime Act, great. And yes, we're gonna get another one by the end of the year, great. But where's the money to enforce those laws?
0: So what would more effective laws or more effective measures look like, apart from um, giving more money to um, the the enforcement agencies?
1: Well, the challenges are that we need um, more transparency so we can see what's going on um, uh, so that the law enforcement agencies, in a way, find it easier to begin their investigations. And that means that we need a proper reform of Britain's uh, tax havens. So those tax havens will will be forced to, to, to publish the true owners of their of their shell companies. Um, we also need a proper reform of Britain's own company registry, which is a far more problematic registry than than the tax haven ones. It's far dodgier than the British Virgin Islands. Um, so those two things would make a big difference in and of themselves. Um, we need proper regulation of the enabler classes, uh, the, the lawyers, the accountants, the reputation managers and so on who, who help oligarchs to integrate their money and themselves into the global elite. Um, if those people were prosecuted for when they do something wrong, rather than you know I- I- ignored, so those crimes ignored, that would make a big difference. It would change the calculation of the entire enabling class. And then the third, as I keep going on about, and I'm gonna say it again, we just need to resource our investigative agencies properly, times their budget by five, times it by six, and see how they get on. That is what really needs to happen. And that's, you know, sadly, where we're, we're very far away from that at the moment. I wonder what you think the,
0: the purpose of reporting on these issues is, or rather, maybe I should say, what, what do you hope the
1: result of this kind of reporting will be? Well, my motivation comes from the fact that I have always been obsessed by Eastern Europe. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, but I always have been. And I moved there after I finished university back in the 1990s in the hope that I would see democratic transformation in Russia and the development of sort of freedom and a, and a wonderful new way of living. And I didn't see that. Instead, I saw the country being looted and the re-establishment of a dictatorship, really, certainly an autocracy. Um, and that makes me really angry, to be honest. Um, and, and it makes me particularly angry that this looting that happened quite possibly the biggest single campaign of looting there has ever been in terms of the amount of wealth that was stolen in such a short period of time. And this crushing of the democratic hopes of a generation. This didn't happen. This wasn't done just by the oligarchs. It was done with our active connivance. It was done with the assistance of Western politicians, Western enablers, and particularly British ones and so what i would you know initially my my motivation is just to expose that like like a you know like a a cockerel standing on a rooftop having a shout you know that's all um you know and that makes me feel you know better to make sure that people actually know people can't say oh we didn't know that makes Mm -hmm. me feel better secondly i hope to to try and drive a degree of of debate around changing what we do the recognition that this isn't just morally wrong this is you know, essentially stupid from the perspective of national security or the perspective of any kind of economic future for the world. If we wish to to build a prosperous society, then we need to stop doing this kind of thing because this is driving the world into a hole. Um, you know, I hope that the, that I make that case and and I'll keep making that case until at least someone listens to me, and and hopefully one day we'll win the argument and and then you know I can retire and lie in a hammock for a bit. Well, I think it's it's good to hear you talk about it in those
0: terms, because I think sometimes when people talk about um, stolen money, they talk about it in terms of why it's bad for British democracy. But actually, the people who are most affected by the the pipeline of dirty money flowing this way are the people who live in those kleptocratic regimes where the wealth is being stolen. As you talk about that vast sums of money expropriated from Eastern Europe, which could really have helped in the the post opening up uh, and the development
1: of those countries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's bad for British democracy, too. Um, you know, oligarchs don't stop being oligarchs just because they've flown into Heathrow. Um, you know, they still want the same things they want at home. They want preferential access to the law and preferential access to politicians and all those things. Those things are bad here, too. Um, but yeah, the, the, the damage that has been done by kleptocracy is overwhelmingly something that's happened overseas. And the people in Ukraine or in Russia or in Azerbaijan or Nigeria, they don't get a vote here. Um, so you know someone has to try and represent their point of view and and you know I'm part of a small group of of journalists and troublemakers who 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 try and do that
0: I want to talk about one of the consequences of uh, this amount of secrecy. And this is something to do that's called uh, slap suits. These are strategic lawsuits against public participation. And they're basically, they're libel lawsuits which are weaponized by very wealthy people against journalists and activists. And the idea is that it makes them frightened of scrutiny or it makes the cost of that scrutiny uh, very, very high. And they've become a, a favorite weapon among oligarchs. For instance, the reporter Catherine Belton was sued by Roman Abramovich last year over these allegations that she made in her book that he had bought Chelsea Football Club at the direction of the behest of Putin himself. You yourself were the target of a slap suit last year. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about it.
1: Yeah, I mean I think slap lawsuits is it's it's like a um it's like an irregular noun, isn't it? I mean a slap lawsuit is something that someone else does. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure the people who've brought this lawsuit against me would argue that it isn't a slap and, and I'm sure they will have their their, their, their time in court to make that at that point that what I did was egregious and appalling. Um, I'm being uh, I'm being sued in Portugal by the vice president of Angola because of um, some something I wrote in my last book, Moneyland, um, about uh, the circumstances of the wedding of his daughter. Um, uh, I'm confident that the Portuguese court will will decide that I did nothing wrong, and I'm quite looking forward to this being resolved because it's been hanging over me for a while. Um, but, you know, and slaps are incredibly bad and annoying uh, and time-consuming. And the cases brought against Catherine Belton and Tom Burgess or Carol Cadwallader um, oh. and others, uh, Scott Stedman is going on at the moment uh, in, in, in this country are a stain on, on Britain's reputation. Um, fortunately, um, hopefully anyway, the, the case in Portugal will, will not be nearly as expensive as an equivalent case in this country. If- but but I, I just to put them into perspective, and I do think it's really important to remember this that that we still have things very lucky compared to journalists in other countries. Um, I you know I had several friends journalists in in Russia who have been killed in the course of their work. I have uh, friends in in other former Soviet countries who have been jailed, um, publicly shamed and humiliated because of their work. They've had their lives ruined. Um, and so you know yes, slap lawsuits are bad, and they're a stain on on our legal system. But, you know, in, in a way, and this is just a sign of how bad things are in other countries, we, we still have things lucky.
0: But, I wanted to get a sense of how you feel that suit has changed the way you work. I mean, you, you say it's not a lot of money. The figure I saw was uh, five hundred thousand
1: euros. Oh, no, no. Is... I mean, no the, the potential damages are are enormous, absolutely. um no, it, it's it's more what the legal expenses to get to the point of the of the court case fortunately are lower in continental Europe than they are in the u k. Um, mm. you know, an equivalent uh, case the the legal costs in the u k would be far, far, far more than I could possibly manage um. Uh, has that changed the way you work to some degree no i'm i'm always careful i'm 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 a responsible journalist i don't throw allegations around lightly um I'd, i'd always try and 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 do you know all the all the work i can do to 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 make sure that what i report is as close to the truth as i can possibly uncover and discover so you know i'm 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 confident that the work i do is is you know to the highest standards um you know obviously there are some things it's hard to find out, but but um, but you know I I do I do the best I can. I'm not just throwing around. I'm not I'm not a tabloid journalist just throwing around any old nonsense. So no, I, I'm it hasn't changed how I work. I remain as 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 careful as I always was. You know I I think that if you're going to make serious allegations, then you need to be very serious about how you research them.
0: And putting your own experience of it to one side for a moment, more
1: broadly, do you
0: think that these slapsuits have? suppress scrutiny in broad terms. Like, do you know of any? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If,
1: yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you, you just need to talk to any British journalist who works in this area, and they will tell you multiple examples of stories that they are absolutely confident in the work that they did, but which they couldn't get published because a, an editor or a, or a lawyer was too careful or too cautious. I mean, it's happened to me multiple times. Um, so, you know, and, and, and every journalist I know who works in this area will be able to tell you the same stories. It's quite entertaining talking to American journalists who will who will say, oh, I had this story, but I couldn't quite stand it up. You know, that's why they don't publish things. Whereas mm-hmm. British journalists will say, oh, I had this story, but I couldn't get it past the lawyers or I couldn't get it past the editors. You know, it is, it is a, it is a it, it's not even a form of censorship. It is censorship. It is you know? because it's happening right now. It's happening right now. And it's happening in the interests of anyone wealthy enough to afford a lawyer. You know, the first, the first question you are trained to ask yourself is, could this, will this person sue? Uh, and one of the, the, the main reasons why you will say this person will sue is if that person is wealthy enough to afford a lawyer. You know, mm. it, that's, it, it, it's the sad truth of how British journalism works, that journalists are all the time censoring themselves, editors are censoring the, the, the copy they publish, lawyers are censoring the copy they check, simply because they're worried whether, that certain people will uh, bring legal proceedings. And it's not, you know, it, it isn't really about the, the nature of the article necessarily, a certain amount, to a certain extent, It's mainly about the nature of the plaintiff. Are they litigious? Are they wealthy? Um, Do they have grounds to sue? Those are the questions you ask.
0: Before we finish off, I wanted to ask you about your role as a tour guide doing these kleptocracy tours around London. So these are basically tours of London that focus on the real estate owned by the post-Soviet oligarchs and so on and so on, the shady characters. And it's a creative way
1: of drawing attention to it. I wanted to ask you where the idea came about. Yeah, I wish it had been my idea. I'm not, I'm not claiming any credit at all for that. As soon as I heard it, I was like, yes, I want to do that. But um, it was my friend, Roman Borisovich, I think, in, in, in conversation with an, an, another, another friend of ours um, who came up with the idea. And, and it was just a, a, essentially a looking for amusing ways, creative, eye-catching ways of exposing London's role as a, as a destination for kleptocratic cash. Um, I did that, think that was that. all. And, and, and the idea was, it's modelled on the Hollywood tours. You know, um, mm-hmm. you drive around Hollywood and look at houses that belong to film stars. You drive around London and look at houses that belong to oligarchs. That's, that's the, the basic calculation. And, and, you know, and they work far better, I suppose, than we could have calculated. They, they, really, they really kind of caught the, the public eye. I thought, aren't you worried that
0: these nouveau riche oligarchs might use it as a way to tour potential places to buy?
1: it's <laughs> not so the first thing that we occurred to me that we haven't yet had an oligarch on the bus um, uh, i i have I have occasionally been asked to do sort of private guides private tour tours for sort of you know wealthy you know for, for for a group of wealthy financiers or whatever but 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 i'd like to I have never done that but but um but but i think they their their idea is mainly from a compliance perspective rather than a looking for investment opportunities i i I think that there is a far more um effective and efficient bespoke uh, real estate uh, solution of available to oligarchs than our kleptocracy tours when they'd have yeah. to share a bus with a load of, of, of you know ordinary <laughs> members of the public and that would be ghastly
0: but there there is a serious side to it because part of the point of the book is to point out that all of this wealth is utterly invisible and sometimes when you actually see it you know when you drive around and you see these palatial palaces and you see them right in front of you, and that is owned by an offshore company and nobody knows who it's owned by. It makes some of these issues very, very visceral. People start to feel them in the way they don't feel, as we were saying at the very beginning, you know, whatever a trillion is or 200
1: billion, whatever these large sums mean. Yeah, I mean, that was the hope, really. You could say, look, that house there, you know, that mansion there, that, that luxury duplex apartment, that, that belongs to a man who got his wealth by stealing an oil company or, or whatever, you know, because he's the son of an oligarch or the, she's the daughter of a president or whatever. Yes, it, 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 that's the idea is to make it visible. And and also, you know, just to make it impossible for people to say they didn't know, you know, because it's easy to walk around West London and assume all those houses belong to, you know, old, old money English aristocrats or or Richard Branson or whoever. Um, yeah. You know, it's easy to think that, but, but, you know, and a lot of them do, but, but also a lot of them don't. And, um, and so the, the point is to, to strip away that ability to say we didn't know. That's, that's what I try and do. Oliver Bulogh, thank you very much.
0: Pleasure. Oliver's book, Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, is published in the United States this month. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all.